Hello everyone and welcome to The Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and Hollywood as told by actor Stephen Tobolowski. I'm David Chen from SlashFilm.com and joining me today, he is the man who played Clyde Burroughs in the ABC original series The Practice, Stephen Tobolowski. Stephen, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. I I love The Practice. I love that show. It, you know, sometimes you're able to be on shows that you were a fan of and that was also when I was in my David Kelly phase. I, I remember there's a period of time I was in every David Kelly uh, TV show th- that came on. And I believe that individual show of the practice, someone asked me how I memorize lines. And this worked back then, but I put it out there for, for young actors who are trying to figure out how to memorize lines. And that is, don't say them out loud. It, when you say them out loud, your mouth and your tongue, they're muscles, and you end up getting a muscle memory of things that are incorrect. So it's better to read it through silently and then let what happens happen when you get in front of the camera, and then you are surprised. This is, this is something I have found, David. A lot of times people say that when you get older, you develop perspective, and I think perspective is just a polite way of saying that life doesn't surprise you anymore. But it's good, <laughs> it's good to let life surprise you, especially if you're an actor. Yeah, uh, and The Practice, man, I really liked that show back when it was on the air in the uh, 90s and early 2000s. Uh, I feel like it's a show that doesn't get talked about too much these days, but I really enjoyed it when it was still airing. So, Well, uh, well it's an amazing thing about, about television. You have huge hit shows, uh, The Practice or 30-something, or how about ER? The, these are enormous hit shows that people don't seem to talk about anymore when they were actually defined the culture at right. the time. I, when the practice was on, people would gather around the TV to say, well, I don't want to miss this week. And uh, David yeah, Kelly... I mean, it's, it's harder to just do that because uh, with a movie or something, you can just buy it. Um, and with a season of TV, if it's not on Netflix or Hulu, it's really difficult to, to check it out. The world has changed, David. The world, the world has changed. Indeed, indeed. Uh, well, speaking of change, uh, let's talk about what is going to happen with the Tobolowski Files. This is the season finale of the Tobolowski Files uh, this year, and we've been going for, I think it's been 12 episodes this season, uh, so we delivered on the promise we made at the beginning. Hooray! And, uh, and Stephen, for you, it has been a Herculean task to complete these episodes, <laughs> right? How many, you said, how many words uh, did this season involve writing? Well, I think according to Simon & Schuster, a book is 80,000 words, but I think this podcast season was somewhere between 90 and 100,000 words. So more than a book's worth of content in the last 12 episodes of The Tobolowski Files delivered to you listeners for free, completely. <laughs> uh, and Stephen loves doing it. I love working with Stephen. Uh, I love consuming the final episodes, and so you know I want to continue doing this show. Stephen wants to continue making it, but uh, we we like this model that we have right now, where Stephen hibernates away with his notebook and writes many many episodes worth at a time, and then we can release them all at once, and that we can have like a whole arc, and you can expect us to be part of your lives on a consistent basis from week to week. Uh, but in order to do that, Stephen needs to produce another, you know, eighty to ninety thousand words, and that's just going to take a while. Uh, so, Stephen, when do you think the next season of the Tobolowski Files is going to be? I think when it's springtime in Seattle. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> springtime in Seattle again, right? So we're talking about probably spring of twenty eighteen or sooner. Uh, depending on how Stephen, uh, how quickly Stephen can get things done, but yeah, spring of 2018 is when you can expect the next episode of the Tobolowski Files. So, in the meantime, what are you gonna do? What's what's gonna happen without any new Tobolowski Files? Uh, I have a few things to share with you. Firstly, obviously, you can access every existing episode of the Tobolowski Files right now. Go to TobolowskiFiles.com. Click on any episode. You can subscribe on iTunes, subscribe via RSS. We're on, we're on Google Play now. That's another thing that's very popular. 
uh, and people can use those links and get to every episode of the show that already exists. So hundreds of hours of, no, no, not hundreds, dozens of hours of Tobolowski content uh, for the taking there uh, for free. So check that out. Uh, But I'd also say that Stephen and I just filmed uh, a live version of one of his shows, very similar to The Primary Instinct, which you can find at theprimaryinstinct.com. But uh, it costs a lot less. It's a lot smaller in terms of the scope. And we are going to release it publicly, and maybe we might shoot more of them. And if you want to follow what's going on with that, if you want to find information on that, follow Stephen on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash Stephen Tobolowsky. That's facebook.com slash Stephen Tobolowsky. Uh, we are going to be sharing uh, the new live show that Stephen did uh, on that site, facebook.com slash Stephen Tobolowsky, when it is ready. Uh, and that should be in the coming months. So between now and then, uh, there is definitely going to be one uh, video of Stephen, uh, a Tobolowsky Files Live that we're going to share and possibly more. So facebook.com slash Stephen Tobolowsky. Stephen, you want to spell it for us? That's S T E P H E N. T as in Tom, O, B as in boy, O, L, O, W, S, K, Y, the Russian spelling. Yeah, so facebook.com slash Stephen Tobolowsky. Stephen also has a bunch of his stuff at stephentobolowsky.com. And so that's where you'll be able to keep in touch with us over the next uh, few months until the next season comes out. Uh, Before we get to today's story, Stephen, you know, what has been your experience this season churning out these episodes? It's been at a different pace than we've done in the past. The stories have been of a different character, a different part of your life than uh, in the past. What's the season been like for you? It's been a great experience. First of all, uh, I have always said that there's a difference between an event and uh, process and an event and a story. And by doing a series of stories like this, I was able to kind of take on a bigger subject that I was uh, afraid, (laughs) that I was uh, maybe a little reticent to take on before. And that was Summerstock and my relationship with my college roommate, Jim McClure. And I was able to take it on in this format. So I look forward to to, to trying this process again and taking on more big subjects. Yeah, well, I, I think I speak for everyone when I say we are looking forward to it. So um, thanks for sharing this season of stories with us, Stephen. But uh, let's get to today's uh, episode. And uh, as a way into that, you know, you recently had a birthday, right, Stephen? Oh, yes, yes. And, and by the way, David, I would... I really want to thank everyone on Facebook for all of the Facebook wishes. I got so many blasts from the past. And I'm, I'm talking about I got wishes from people back when I was in single digits. They knew me back then. Carolyn Denson, Jill Wortham, Jane Arrington, Nancy Arrington, all the people that were on my neighborhood in Perryton when I was two, three, four years of age. Thank you so much for all those wishes. But you may know, David, because you access Google frequently. I just turned 66, and you know what that means? It means I am now old enough to spend my IRA without a tax penalty. Nice. Hooray. Yes, hooray. Not that I will. I've always been more of a saver than a spender. But my father started my IRA back in the early 80s when IRAs weren't cool. It was hard to comprehend putting money someplace where you couldn't spend it. I remember the phone call. It was my birthday. I was 30-something. I was living with Beth in the Hollywood Hills in the house with the swimming pool. Dad called and said as a gift he opened up an account in my name for $2,000. At the time, I never imagined I would ever live to be old enough to spend it, but (laughs) here I am. I thanked him anyway. Years went by. I often forgot I had the account, and I never touched it. And now, drumroll, it is worth over $100,000. And one of the joys of the IRA is that my dad is still alive to thank him again, properly with a hug and a kiss, which I did a few weeks ago when I was in Dallas for the book tour. I reminded Dad about the IRA, and at 95, Dad forgets many things, but he remembered the IRA, and he asked me how much it was worth. He was thrilled when I told him. 
He smiled and with a sort of pride offered the moral to the story, Stephen, you always have to prepare for your future. My father was right. But his advice isn't as easy to follow as it sounds. We never know what our future will be to prepare for. Dad never prepared for a future in which he was blind. He never imagined a future without our mother. Who could? Time takes us down curious paths. Often what we think of as our plans are only shapes in the dark. I want to be an actor. I want to fall in love. And one of the darkest shapes of all, I want to be happy. When I was 20, going on 21, I was afflicted by them all. All of the things that move in the dark. All the things that appear to be close, but were out of reach. I was an actor. But I was an actor at Forestburg, making $10 a week performing Oscar Wilde for convicts. I was in love with Beth. But I existed in a time and a place where it was impossible to show her. Love unexpressed is a kind of death. And my pursuit of happiness was the most elusive of all. I knew it was out there. I saw it one night from my tiny window from my bed in the hayloft in the form of a giant stag standing at the forest's edge in a thunderstorm. In a flash of lightning, he was there, so huge and beautiful, and then he vanished into the night. I was too young to understand the real battlefield Forrestberg offered. It wasn't the struggle to create art. That was never going to happen. The schedule imposed by our boss, Al Maisel, ensured we would always be flying by the seat of our pants. Even if by sheer luck we did have a moment of truth emerge in a play, we were usually performing for audiences that couldn't see it, like the Otisville prison that hated everything we did and would kill us if they weren't chained to their seats. The real battlefield any hardship presents is time. The relentlessness of Forsberg was a test. Could I carve out little pieces of the passing day for myself? Sidebar. I've come to think that one of the fundamental ways we can define the ages of man is by our ability to control our time. Children have no control. That's why they're exhausting. They always want to play now. They always want another story now. And then they fall asleep when we get to Disneyland. You have to hold them in line so you can wake them up to see the country bears. Exhausting. The elderly can be exhausting, too. They used to have control of time, but they forgot where they put it. It's only for that span of years in the middle. We have a chance to call part of a day our own. But we have to learn how to do it. When I was in my 30s, I directed one of Beth's plays in her hometown in Jackson, Mississippi. One evening after rehearsal, I sat with some of the actors on the front porch of their home and watched cars go by. For one evening, I was one of those people, sitting and rocking. I even wore a t-shirt and drank a beer to play the part. It was wonderful. The furious rhythm of rehearsals and production meetings vanished. I did nothing but be part of the day, turning into night. The sun set. The stars came out. Cars stopped at the stop sign and drove on. We sat on the porch for hours and barely spoke a word. In the silence, I felt what it was like to be alive. Looking back, I suspect what we were doing was becoming a master of our time. In taking those hours for ourselves and not work, we found unexpected happiness. I suspect I could have done it at Forestburg. I had weapons more powerful than a rocking chair at my disposal. I had great literature, beautiful surroundings, and the girl I loved. And yet I failed. I was not clever enough to find the time for joy. The unrelenting awfulness of the schedule at Forestburg ran us ragged. To find the time and space to love required the skills of a ninja master. And this was years before the word ninja had ever been used in a sentence. The true test of controlling time is always in a crisis. When the world is on fire, can you still dream of water? Beth and I often relied on one tool to stop the clock for a few moments to breathe. Imagination. Imagination can be a great resource in controlling time. 
After a moderately successful performance of Tom Jones, I would lie for a few minutes with Beth on her single bunk bed and look into our possible future. I'd say, sweetie, when we get back to Dallas, maybe we can move in together. Beth would answer, well, that would be nice, sweetie. Sidebar. There was a period of time when Beth and I called each other by the same nickname, Sweetie. That lasted for several years. We changed nicknames in Los Angeles. The new nickname we called each other was Chili, as in the stew. Frederick Bailey told me at a party that it was confusing for two people to call each other by the same nickname. Just wasn't done. So we augmented the nicknames to Big Chill and Little Chill. That worked until the movie The Big Chill came out, and then people would think Beth was talking about the movie when she was really talking about me, so the nicknames changed again. Beth went back to calling me Sweetie, and I called her Chill. In Forestburg, when we lay together for the few minutes we could be alone, sometimes Beth spoke of her fears of never getting cast as an actress. Again, my imagination answered. I said, Beth, none of that matters. It doesn't? No. Why not, she asked. Because when we go back to Dallas, Jim McClure and I are going to try to start our own theater, like the Actors Theater of Louisville. We'll produce, we'll direct, we'll write our own plays, we'll be the bosses, we'll cast you all the time. Beth looked at me sadly and smiled and said, And if that doesn't work, maybe we could just become pirates? sail up and down the Brazos River? Yeah, we could do that too, I said. The only thing that matters is that we're together. At that point, a couple of 13-year-old apprentices came into the room and climbed into their bunks. And then we could be alone, I said. Beth looked away and whispered in her version of Greta Garbo, I want to go away. That summer... Beth and I were on dangerous ground, and we didn't know it. We were old enough to fall in love, but not old enough to know how to protect that love. You cannot protect what you love unless you know how to control your time. That's why at a certain age we celebrate anniversaries more than birthdays. Both involve a trip around the sun. One is a matter of luck. The other is a product of determination. We auditioned for a Midsummer Night's Dream. I ended up getting a great part, one of the best comedic parts in Shakespeare. Bottom, the weaver. Beth was overlooked again. She got the almost non-existent role of a fairy. She had one line and several moments where she chirped. There was a profound hurt in Beth's eyes. When you are a theater actor, you love the written word. When you're not cast, you're heartbroken. Love unexpressed is a kind of death. One afternoon, director Frederick Bailey took me out into the forest to work on Bottom's Dream. I was excited. This is one of Shakespeare's most famous comedic monologues. Bottom, a weaver by trade, but in truth, a delightful imbecile who fancies himself a great actor, wakes up in the clearing of a forest. In the previous scenes, we see that Bottom has been captured by the fairies and is put under a spell where he is transformed into part man, part donkey, and becomes the lover of Titania, the queen of the fairies. In the monologue, Bottom wakes up from his enchantment and tells the audience about his incredible dream. We find his recollections amusing because we know he wasn't dreaming. But the speech takes a turn. As he tells us his fantastical tale... Bottom becomes more and more certain that what happened wasn't a dream. The audience finds this realization even funnier, not that he was once a jackass, but that even this simple soul can learn a profound lesson, that life is more mysterious than anything we could imagine. I knew from school that Shakespeare was a master of mixing the melodramatic with the poetic, but it wasn't until I worked on A Midsummer Night's Dream that I encountered one of Shakespeare's skills that we didn't cover in class. Shakespeare never underestimated the cosmic quality of comedy. He seemed to delight in introducing profound ideas through his simplest characters. 
One afternoon, I took a break from rehearsal to go into town with a friend of Tony's to pick up electrical supplies. Bailey was going to take some time working with the fairies. Even though they didn't have many lines, he wanted the fairies to have a presence on stage that could represent the magic of the world of night. He was going to lead Beth and the others through fairy improvisations. I came back an hour later with new light bulbs for some of the instruments. Jean ran out to the truck to meet me. Stephen, you need to see Tony. He's with Beth. Sure, Jean. What's up? You need to talk to Tony. Right, I said. I took the bulbs into Tony, who was in the lighting cage. Stephen, uh, you need to see Beth. Right, right. Jean said I should see you. What's up? Is she all right? She, uh, she may have gone crazy. I laughed. Yeah, well, you know, Beth's always crazy. That's why I love her so much. No, no. You don't understand. Not good crazy. Something happened in rehearsal? She's in bad shape. She was talking about something eating her brain? You need to see her. We may need to get her to a doctor. Huh? The blood drained from my head. Where is she, Tony? In bed. Some of the fairies are watching her. Thank you. Thank you, Tony. Oh, God. I ran from the booth to Beth's room. She was lying in her bunk. Several of the apprentices were standing around her. One held a wet cloth to her forehead. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Let, let me talk to her. The fairies left, and I knelt beside Beth's bunk. What happened, baby? Beth seemed feverish. I tried to cool her forehead with the wet washcloth. Insects. Insects, she whispered. What insects? Insects from Mars are eating my brain. Make them stop. Please, make them stop. I will. I will, baby, I said. I held her tightly. I'm here. They won't hurt you anymore. No, I could still hear them. They're biting me. Shh, shh, shh. I'll make them go away. I'll hold you until you're safe. Beth broke down and began sobbing. I was horrified. I had no idea what happened or what to do. All I could do was hold her tighter. Why? Why? Why am I here? Beth cried. So we could be together? But we're not. We're not. I didn't come here so these insects could slip into my brain. I don't want to be a fairy. I want to make love to you. Don't you know that? Don't you know anything? That's why I'm here. I began crying as I held Beth. I know. I know. I'm sorry. I want you too, but there's nowhere we can go. There's nowhere we can be. We could go to the woods. Well, then the insects really would eat your brain, I said. Beth started laughing. Honey, I wasn't joking about that. Beth seemed to calm down as she explained. Bailey made us do these improvs where we had to only talk in fairy talk. We chirped. But I think I may have said something for real. Wrong things. And the insects from Mars came down and crawled into my brain. I know it sounds crazy. Do you believe me? With all my heart, Beth. With all my heart. You do? Yes. Beth held me so hard I couldn't breathe for a second. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for believing me. I wiped the tears from her face with the washcloth. Whatever happened on that stage was real, Beth. I know that. Do you feel better now? Have they gone away? Beth listened for something unheard and then whispered, I think so. I think they've gone. For now. Bailey came into the room. His face was flushed with fear and embarrassment, and yet he smiled warmly. Sorry to interrupt you guys. Beth, are you all right? I think so. I think they've gone away. That's good. I'm sorry if I did anything to hurt you. I thought we would have some fun. I guess we didn't. Beth laughed. I guess not. <laughs> Bailey said warmly, We won't do that anymore. Thank you, said Beth. And Bailey, I'm sorry if I scared everyone. Don't worry about it, Beth. I don't know if it means anything, but I thought you were brilliant. You made the whole fairy world come to life. I know this is a sort of thankless role. 
And if it takes you to a bad place, I understand if you want to leave the play. I don't want to, but I'll understand. No, no, Bailey, I'll be a fairy. I'll be a fairy as long as they don't come back. Bailey looked at me. Well, I'll leave you two alone. I'm sorry, Stephen. It's okay, Bailey, I'm here now. Bailey left the room. I looked at Beth and kissed her gently. I'm here now. Beth looked at me. Just promise you'll keep them away from me. Promise. I looked down at Beth with fear in my heart. I promise. I must have done a pretty good job. The insects from Mars seemed to keep their distance from Beth. We were rehearsing Midsummer in the afternoons and performing Tom Jones in the evening. In between, we had tongue and mashed potatoes for dinner. Maisel was right. I could see some of the apprentices were gaining weight. One evening, it was my turn to help our new cook, Vinny, with the dishes. Vinny replaced the mysterious Mr. Watson who vanished one morning before daybreak. Tony had doubts about Vinny, but from my point of view, Vinny picked up the slack admirably. It looked like breakfast, lunch, and dinner were in the hands of a seasoned professional. Vinny was a short, nervous man with old-school Navy tattoos on his scrawny forearms. I put on my apron and gloves and was ready to scrub. Vinny pointed out where the brushes and dish soap were. Thanks for dinner, Vinny. Yeah. So, uh, did you learn to cook in the Navy, or were you always a cook? Who wants to know? I took it that Vinny wasn't a people person, either. I said, well, it takes talent to cook, but it seems like it takes a special talent to know how to cook for a large group of people. Nah, depends on what you cook. You get a sheet. Vinny held up a piece of paper. Here's my sheet. Tells you how many people you have to feed and what is considered a portion. The portion varies as to whom you're cooking for. Are they workers that work all day? Are they soldiers? Or are they guys like you that flit around wearing costumes? Well, feels like we run around all day. My friend, you have no idea what running around all day is like until you're on a ship in the middle of the ocean. Well, it seems like you couldn't run too far on a ship. What do you mean? Vinny asked. Well, if you, if you run too far, you fall into the ocean, I said. No one falls in the ocean unless the ship is on fire or something. Well, I didn't mean sailors would literally run off the boat. It was, it was sort of a joke. Vinny walked toward me. I don't get the joke. Explain it to me. It was nothing, Vinny. No, no, I like jokes. I don't get this one. How is it funny to fall into the ocean? It's not. Falling into the ocean is not funny at all. You're right. You're right about that. My comment was more about the size of the ship. See, my vision of a Navy ship is from the movies, which I'm sure is inaccurate. But in my head, a boat is very cramped with narrow passageways, so it's not conducive to running. Then he stared at me. I continued, but, but I'm sure you ran a lot. Boy, way more than any of us do here. And you were soldiers protecting us. Must have been difficult. You have no idea. I know. I know, Vinny. There was danger everywhere. I sailed across the Atlantic. I pulled into a port in Hamburg, Germany. My first day on dry land in over a month, and I was almost run over by a 1968 Mercedes-Benz diesel. Oh, you, you, you had time to see the make and model? Vinny stared at me. Uh, no, no, that's good, Vinny. I mean, it's good. Because if, heaven forbid, you were injured, you would be able to fill out the insurance report. You ever seen one? he asked. Uh, no, sir. 1968 Mercedes-Benz diesel is the finest automobile in the world. Well, I guess it was nice to almost get hit by the best. What? Just a coincidence. Lots of people are run over by cars, but very few are lucky enough to be hit by a really good car. Vinny stared at me. Do you know how much a 1968 Mercedes-Benz diesel costs? Uh, no, sir, I do not. 
$50,555. Wow, that's a lot of money, I said. You bet your sweet ass it is. Then he walked over and looked at his list. This is a menu for the rest of the week. I have to go shopping tomorrow. Yes, sir. That night after the show, me and Tony and Jean and Beth met for a beer. I'm telling you, Tony, he said he was almost hit by a 1968 Mercedes-Benz diesel, and he told me how much it cost. $50,555, Tony said. Yes, exactly. Tony shook his head. Lunatic. Maybe he was a Section 8? I mean, who in their right mind would work here? We all stood silently drinking our beer. It was the opening night of a Midsummer Night's Dream. For the first time, it seemed like we were going to have a real audience. Seems like Shakespeare is still a draw. Before the show, Vinny whipped up something special, Salisbury steak with creamed onions. I never had onions as a side dish, so I thought I'd give them a try. One of the ways imagination lets us control time is in finding unexpected celebration, even if it's only onions. I hung behind, finishing my dinner. The canteen emptied out as everyone went to get ready for the show. I was eating a piece of white bread for dessert when Maisel came running into the hall. Vinny did not poison the onions. You hear me? If anyone says that he did, they could get the hat and coat and get the hell off of the place. Maisel stormed out. I stared at my plate with the remainder of a pile of creamed onions. I ran into the kitchen. There was a huge box of rat poison on the counter beside the pot of creamed onions. I ran back into the theater. That is when I heard the crying, the chaos. People were vomiting everywhere. There was a line of people trying to get into the two bathrooms backstage. Some vomited in the potted plants in the lobby. Some just ran out into the woods. Tony... Always the bearer of bad news, ran past me on his way to help some of the fallen. He called out, Then he tried to kill everyone. He poisoned the onions. You eat any? Yes, I said. Tony shook his head. One of the apprentices is really sick. She's vomiting blood. I'll be back to help you. Try to throw up if you can. Get it out of your system. I still felt fine, but I took Tony's advice to heart. I ran out into the field behind the theater and tried to throw up. I couldn't. I was hoping maybe I would escape. Fortunately, I didn't have the imagination to find a lot of celebration in the onions. I left half of the serving on my plate. A crowd of happy theater-goers were lining up outside the barn for their dose of Shakespeare. Inside the barn, 75% of the company were dealing with their dose of rat poison. More and more were becoming violently ill. Maisel did the only thing he could do. He called a company meeting. Everyone that could still walk came into the theater. Have a seat, everyone. Have a seat. I'll make this quick in that I hear several of you have come down with the case of the pre-show jitters. You may be feeling bad now, but that will make this opening even more memorable. Remember, it is said that Moliere gave his greatest performance when he was near death. I think the troubled tummies will diminish over the course of the evening, but for your convenience, we will place vomit buckets off stage right and left. Please, use them as discreetly as possible. Let's have a great show! I went backstage to get dressed. Maisel opened the house. So far, I was fine. I put on my bottom pants and vest, but when the stage manager called ten minutes, I was seized with cramps. Well, well it wasn't cramps exactly. It was like someone had pushed a hot knife into my gut and twisted it. I broke into a sweat and ran into the bathroom backstage and hugged the toilet. I continued to hug until close to the start of the show. Every production at Forsberg so far had been marked with horror like the plagues of Egypt. First we had the dance of the wee folk when the curtain didn't rise in Cox and Box. The actors did the entire performance squatting and duck walking around the stage. Then came the plague of darkness. Both Cox and Box and the American Dream were performed in almost total blackness. We performed The Importance of Being Earnest for Criminals and Tom Jones for an Insane Asylum. But nothing compares to the opening of A Midsummer Night's Dream. We performed one of the most delightful comedies ever written, with a cast of kings and queens, elves and fairies, friends and lovers, 
all vomiting throughout the entire five-act play. Most of the time, the actors were able to get to the vomit buckets offstage. Then the play continued with the sounds of retching in the background. Sometimes the actors couldn't get offstage. They'd hurry to get to the wings. When they saw they couldn't make it, they would simply turn up stage and vomit on the set. I had to vomit in the middle of Bottom's dream. That is a monologue. So I was the only person on stage. I left mid-sentence, vomited, and returned to complete the speech, and the audience sat there. No one left. No one complained. No one called the local hospital. I can't imagine how they would describe the evening to their friends and neighbors. Did they think it was a modern take on the play? Did they think we were all dying? Did they not notice... Or were they used to actors vomiting through plays at Forestburg? Huh, if I were a betting man, I'd have to go with the latter. None of the company was permanently injured. One apprentice was sidelined for the night, but she returned the following day. Vinnie vanished into the wilds of upstate New York, never to be seen again. I think the flaw in his plan of mass murder was that he underestimated the dose he needed to keep an actor off the stage. We may have been a bunch of guys and girls flitting around in costumes, but we were soldiers nonetheless. Soldiers of empathy, who cherished the most terrifying battle cry of all, as Al Maisel often said, in the words of the immortal William Shakespeare, the show must go on. Our new cook was Kurt. He was a pleasant young man who was a people person. After a performance, Kurt would turn on the radio in the canteen and cook up hamburgers. We would sing to our favorite songs. Occasionally, we would slow dance if we found a suitable partner. Gene and Beth and I would listen to Tony tell his stories. He was hilarious. Ross would delight us by playing his recorders with his nose. We would relive the strange history of our cooks and our narrow escape from death. Now, at last, there was laughter in the halls of insanity. For some reason, the talk on the street was that A Midsummer Night's Dream was the show to see, and I don't think it was the vomiting on opening night. But it could have been another far more entertaining disaster that beset the production. Dogs. Yes. The Torah of Forestburg now launched the Plague of Beasts. There were two large dogs, Weimaraners, that must have dug a tunnel under the barn. Their first appearance came during one of the big romantic scenes in Midsummer. The fairies bewitch the four young lovers in the woods so that they will fall in love with the first person they see. And of course, it's always the wrong person. They chase each other around the stage, protesting their love, falling out of love, vowing love anew. And finally, they pass out, exhausted. They lie on the stage asleep as the fairies undo the spell. While the actors pretended to sleep, the two big dogs stuck their heads up at the back of the stage. The audience started laughing. The laughter seemed to stir the dogs' curiosity. They wandered down to the footlights. Along the way, they paused to sniff the crotches of the sleeping actors. The audience loved this. They roared. The dogs turned and wandered off stage to great applause. At the sound of cheering, the actors woke up and the scene concluded. I watched it all from the back of the house. I went backstage for my next entrance as the lovers were exiting, congratulating each other on how well the scene went. We got him tonight, said Hermia. And that, my friends, is how you play Shakespearean comedy, said Demetrius. We had him in the palm of our hands, said Lysander. I said, not really. There were dogs on stage. What? said Helena. Yeah, two big dogs were sniffing your crotches. The actors were unsure if I was joking. I continued. I mean, I mean, the scene was good. It was better than usual. But the audience was laughing at the dogs. 
In an instant, the actors factored in the plagues of Forestburg and knew I was telling the truth. Shelley, who had endured audience members from the Sunshine Club pulling their pants down as she performed in Tom Jones, now faced the indignity of being sniffed by Weimaraners. Once again, she took Maisel to task outside the theater. What kind of theater is this? I'm a serious actress. I came here to give my heart and soul to this company, to perform some of the great works of the world stage, and you can't keep wild dogs from sniffing my crotch on stage? Well, this has never happened before. I don't know where the dogs came from or how they got in, but I will take measures. Believe me, I will take measures. Maisel asked Tony to see where the dogs had breached the perimeter. Tony couldn't find the tunnel. He assumed they came in from the woods, dug under the foundation of the barn, and walked through the dressing room and up the stairs at the back of the stage. The dogs either had a regular schedule or a great sense of timing. They came on stage the next night as well, at exactly the same moment of the play. The audience roared with laughter and applauded their exit. This time I could see Shelley open an eye to confirm her worst suspicions. The next night, Maisel assured Shelley that there would be no problem with the dogs. I stood at the back of the auditorium with Maisel and watched and waited. He whispered to me, If those dogs come on stage again, I got a little surprise for them. Maisel reached into the pocket of the long brown overcoat he was wearing and showed me a handful of rocks he had picked up by the creek. The lovers did their scene. They fell asleep. The dogs made their entrance. The audience laughed. Maisel ran down the aisle shouting, Get off the stage! Get off the stage, you damn dogs! The audience howled. Maisel chased the dogs across the stage, throwing rocks. The dogs escaped unharmed. The laughter and applause after Maisel shooed the dogs off stage shook the building, and it could have been the most successful theatrical moment of the summer. After the chaos subsided, the lovers awoke and finished the scene. Shelley took Maisel outside. So, that was your solution? To run across the stage in a big overcoat throwing rocks? I was teaching the dogs that behavior will be punished. You looked like a flasher, said Shelley. Tomorrow, the dogs will be too afraid to come on stage, I promise you. Anyway, the audience loved it. Just to let you know, if this were an equity production, I would report you to the union. Shelley stormed off. Maisel stood watching her go, muttering, Miss Priss. The dogs did not learn their lesson, and Maisel, running down the aisle in his overcoat, became a new part of the scene. You would think that whatever gods of retribution that were toying with the production of A Midsummer Night's Dream would be satisfied by the plague of dogs. But no, there was another surprise. One evening after the play, After a beer with Tony and Jean and goodnight kisses with Beth, I adjourned to the hayloft and went to sleep. I woke up on stage in the middle of the night, standing in the blackness. I was disoriented at first. I had no idea where I was or how I got there. When I came to my senses, I walked out of the theater, up the stairs to the hayloft, and crawled back into my bed. I didn't tell anyone. I assumed I just had a midsummer night's dream. Until the next night, I awoke in the darkness, standing in the middle of the stage, in my pajamas. Now I was scared. At breakfast, I told Tony and Jean and Beth. They looked at me, hoping there was a punchline. Beth looked at me with concern. Did it happen at the same time each night? She asked. I'm not sure, but it was late. Everyone was asleep, I said. That's something, Tony said. Of course it's something, said Jean. No, not that something. Another something, Tony said. What do you mean? Well, it wasn't just that you were sleepwalking. But to get to the stage, you had to crawl out of your bed, walk down a flight of stairs, open the door to the theater, walk the length of the auditorium, and then climb up on stage, and stand. And you didn't wake up that whole time. Right, that's what I had to do. That's something, said Tony. Have you ever walked in your sleep, asked Jean. 
Well, when I was little, I did. The last time I ever did it, I was living with Jim McClure in the dorm. We were doing Royal Hunt of the Sun, and I put my blanket over my shoulders like a costume and tried to walk out of the room. I couldn't turn the doorknob in my sleep. Jim woke up and got me back into bed. It could be the stress, Tony postulated. The next night, things escalated. I woke up, on stage, in costume. Sort of. I was wearing my bottom shirt and boots. My pants were at my ankles. Apparently, I could not belt them in my sleep. What scared me the most was when I awoke, I was in a pose I often assumed when I performed Bottom's Dream. I can only assume I was acting in my sleep. I sat on the stage in the darkness. How could I have changed into my costume? When I was sure I was awake, I walked down the back stairs of the stage into the dressing room, and there, on my chair, in front of my place at the makeup mirror, were my pajamas. I made my way to Beth's room and woke her up. Sweetie, sweetie, I'm scared. I need your help. Beth woke up. What's wrong, sweetie, she said. I began to cry and held her tightly. She held me and stroked my head. There, there, she said. What happened? I was on stage again, in my costume. I think I may have been acting. Shh, she whispered. I don't know how to make it stop. It may be the insects from Mars. Maybe they came back and they're after you now, Beth said. Maybe. I have an idea, said Beth. What? We can fool them. Tomorrow night you sleep here with me. If they try to take you, I could shoo them away. I held Beth in gratitude. Thank you, thank you, I'm so sorry, but I think I'm losing my mind. I know, I know. I'll keep them away. The next night I crawled into the tiny bed with Beth. In the middle of the night I woke up again on stage, in costume, performing Bottom's Dream. This time I had an audience. Beth. She stood watching me from the side of the auditorium. When I woke up, she came on stage. What happened? I asked. You sat up. You said you missed your cue. I held you down and said, no, you're dreaming. And you said, no, 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 not this time. This time it's for real. And then what did I do? You pushed me away and you left the room. You walked to the theater. You went downstairs into the dressing room. You put on your costume. You tried to hang up your pajamas, but you missed the hangers, and they fell on the floor. You walked up the back stairs to the stage, and you began Bottom's Dream. I went out and watched you. You stopped after a few lines and woke up. Oh, God, Beth. God, what's happening? I don't know what to do. At breakfast, we related the events to Tony and Jean. Tony raised his eyebrows. It's like a... Compulsion, Tony said. Yeah, and I'm exhausted. Every time this happens, I seem to be getting weaker and weaker. I seem to be putting on more and more of my costume and getting through more of the monologue before I wake up. It's the insects from Mars, said Beth. Jean said, I hate to say this, but maybe you need to see a doctor. Not that I think you're going crazy, but maybe it's the exhaustion factor. A doctor can give you something to help you sleep. Maybe, I said. If nothing else, it could interrupt the cycle, Jean said. After breakfast, I saw Maisel walking across the yard. Uh, Mr. Maisel, I called. Yes, he said. I ran up to him. Something strange has been happening to me over the past few nights. I don't know how to say this, but I've been sleepwalking. Sleepwalking? Yes, sir. I leave my room, I walk to the dressing room, I put on my costume, and I start to perform Bottom's Dream. I wake up on stage in the middle of the night. It's scaring me to death. I can't seem to stop it. It's getting worse. Maybe you know a doctor? I could get something to help me sleep? Maisel stared at me, his eyes filled with tears. Uh, sit down. We sat down on the grassy patch in front of his house. Maisel looked at me and gathered his words. Stephen, you're not sleepwalking. 
I'm not. Not really. I don't know how to tell you this. It's my brother. Your brother? Your brother who started this place who died, I said. Yes, the one who wrote the music for everything we do. He's... he's still here. What? I asked. He's buried under the stage. It was his last wish. Over the years, actors have told me they thought they saw someone standing on stage in the middle of the night and then vanish. A few years ago, another actor, like you, was up in the middle of the night performing on stage. They never were able to put their costumes on. That's new. Are you telling me I'm possessed? No, no. He doesn't mean any harm. Just do the speech for him. Do the speech, and maybe he'll go away. I told Beth that we were haunted. She absolutely believed me. Believe Maisel. This was the wonder of Beth. These kinds of explanations for the world did not give her pause. In fact, quite the opposite. She found the explanation of the ghost of Maisel's brother still at work in the theater explained the entire host of plagues that beset our productions. The curtains not going up in cocks and box, the lights going out, the dogs appearing at the same time every night in midsummer, and her being attacked by the insects from Mars. I think you should do what Maisel says, said Beth. Do the speech? Yes. Even if you wake up, do the whole monologue. That night I woke up on stage again. I composed myself and performed all of Bottom's dream from start to finish. I bowed and left the stage. The sleepwalking stopped. Beth went home after a Midsummer Night's Dream. Forsberg had at least created a deprivation that taught us we did not want to be apart anymore. Next year, we moved in together. I stayed and played Tom in the glass menagerie. Maisel gave me a raise, $25 a week for the last two weeks of the season. There were no real plagues during this production, but there was a moment of magic. Tony and I snuck into the canteen after dark to liberate some beers after hours. We heard a noise outside. Tony escaped unseen with a six-pack out the side door, but I was stuck in the canteen in the dark. I hid behind an old couch in case it was Maisel. It was not. The new interloper was Debbie Gennaro, one of our better actresses and singers. She walked over to the baby grand piano and sat down and started to play Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata in the Moonlight. She played the song for no one but herself and the night. I had experienced the artistic moment before, my freshman year, when I saw Tommy, a ballet dancer who lived on our floor in the dorm, when he took his first leap. I had never seen anything so exciting. I understood everything about art I would ever need to know. Art defines the moment of departure. It enables us to momentarily leave the confines of our lives here on earth and in an instant tell the story of what it meant to be here. Debbie sitting alone at that piano, lit only by a shaft of moonlight, playing the Moonlight Sonata, one of the greatest pieces ever composed, was the first time I experienced an entire work of art in a perfect setting. Art, like grief, must have a witness. I never told Debbie I was hiding behind the couch while she played. If she ever hears this story, I hope it will serve as my confession that she gave something pure and perfect to the world that will always live in my heart. I know you've been hurt by someone else I can tell you carry yourself But if you let me Here's what I'll do I'll take care of you I came home from Forestburg the day school started. Mom and Dad picked me up at the airport. They dropped me off at the drama building. Mom took my suitcase with my mountains of dirty clothes home to be washed. 
And that is how Paul Friedman's legacy, the man from the ice cream store in Troop, Pennsylvania, ended up in my bedroom closet at home. My mother found it wrapped in my sweater. She put it in a pile of high school memorabilia and closed the door. And there it stayed like a sleeping princess in a fairy tale for 37 years. In retrospect, it all makes perfect sense. The horrors of Forsberg, plus the impossible schedule, plus living on beer and tongue for three months, plus insects from Mars eating our brains, plus me being possessed by the ghost of Al Maisel's brother, completely distracted me. In 2010, I was in Dallas for Thanksgiving. My dad could still walk. He had a custom of going to the SMU Fitness Center. He would pedal on the Exer bike and weigh himself many times to see if it was doing any good. On this particular trip to SMU, I felt the first pressure in my chest. Nothing painful, just something odd in an odd place. I decided in the shower I would have to go to my doctor when I got back to Los Angeles. But I still had work to do in Dallas. My main mission on this trip was to collect anything I wanted to keep. I searched cabinets, bookshelves, even the garage for the precious. And there, in my bedroom closet, along with my theater history notes, was the large manila envelope Paul Friedman gave me decades ago as a legacy. And it all came back to me. Jim and I stopped to Troop, Pennsylvania, on the way to Forestburg, we went to get butter pecan ice cream at Mr. Friedman's store. He gave me this envelope with only one instruction, open this when you've run out of options. I got to Los Angeles, went to my doctor. The news was not good. I was scheduled for open heart surgery in 36 hours. My surgeon was not a people person. He said before the operation, I should finish any unfinished business. And I thought, now is the time to open Paul Friedman's legacy. In fact, this is probably why I kept forgetting about it all of these years, so I could open it when I truly had run out of options. I carefully unsealed Mr. Friedman's gift. Inside, it looked like there was paper of some kind. Lots of paper. I pulled it out, and there were dozens of 50-year-old articles from the New York Times on the future of nuclear energy. I started to laugh. I laughed so hard I cried. They say tears are healthy. The more I looked at each individual article of how in the future there will be nuclear power plants that will provide unlimited <laughs> energy, that we may even have nuclear-powered cars and spaceships, I thought of Mr. Friedman spending hours to carefully clip and save these articles from the Science Times section for someone, for me, to guide them in the future it was both delusional and dear, a description of life on earth. In my final hours before surgery, I read through each article. Well, I, I skimmed through them. I took notes of what the future would look like. The Science Times was wrong. Again. The one element they missed was catastrophe. The Chernobyls, the Three Mile Islands, the Fukushimas. Science is interested in defining the expected. Religion exists to get us through the unexpected. I survived surgery, well, obviously. I spent two days in the ICU, one week in the cardio ward, and then I was put back on the street as stipulated by my insurance policy. I left the hospital stapled together and carefully drove me home. My brother Paul flew out to watch over me through my first terrifying days without access to an oxygen tank. I'd been at home for a week when I got a phone call from Jim McClure's sister Jenny. She said, Stephen, Jim needs to talk to you. I thought he had heard about my surgery and wanted to wish me well. No, not at all. Jenny continued, Stephen, Jim is dying. He may not make it through the day. He has to see you. He needs to talk to you. All right, Jenny. All right. Jenny gave me the address. I grabbed a pillow for my chest. Ann and I jumped in the car. I didn't even know that Jim was in Los Angeles. I thought he was still in New York. 
we arrived at an apartment complex somewhere on the west side of Los Angeles. Jim was in a hospital bed in his living room. He was in the final stages of hospice care. Jenny and a nurse greeted me at the door. Jenny explained that Jim may not be able to remain conscious for very long. She said, He needed to see you, Tobo. Sure, I said. They left us alone. I walked over to Jim's bed. Hey there, Jim. Hey, Rumi. Yeah, Jenny called me. I didn't know you were sick. Oh, man, oh, man. I'm worse than sick. Man, I'm dying. (laughs) Dying sucks. I imagine. Look, over on the bookcase is a play I wrote for you. It's an adaptation of Uncle Vanya. You see it? I looked around and found a big manuscript. Is this it? Jim looked. Yeah, I thought you'd be great in this part. Maybe Bailey could direct? Sure, thank you. And there's, there's a good part in it for Grove. We had a reading in New York. Went well. I made some changes. Sounds good, I said. And Rumi? Yes? Something else. Jim paused and tried to get a breath. I need to tell you why I left you at Forestburg. Huh? I never could tell you. Sure, Jim. I didn't tell you the truth. When we drove to New York, I was in love. You were? Yeah. I kept calling her. I remember you kept vanishing. Yeah. We were in a desperate situation. She needed me. I had to be with her. I couldn't tell you. I couldn't tell anyone. You understand? Yes, Jim, I do. I knew you'd be all right, even though that place was a dump. I can't believe you stayed. I had to. Jim smiled. And then you have dogs on stage licking your balls or something? No, no, not my balls. Shelley's balls. But yes, there were dogs. And ghosts? I think so. I can't figure that one out. Jim started laughing. God, I could listen to you tell those stories forever. Forrestburg was terrible. You were right about that. Oh, oh, Jim, Jim, there was something I have to tell you. I, I don't know if you remember Paul Friedman, the ice cream store man in Troop in Pennsylvania. We visited Granny and Esther and Ben. Oh, yeah, yeah, and I peeled the apple. Yes. And we went to the ice cream store for butter pecan, but we had popsicles. Yes. Do you remember the envelope he gave me? He said it was a legacy that he'd been saving up for me for years. Yeah, yeah. I forgot that. I did too. I opened it three weeks ago. What was it? Articles from the New York Times on nuclear power. (laughs) What? Yeah, about a hundred of them, Jim, on the future of atomic energy. That's what he was saving? Yeah, and I saved it too. I saved it for 40 years. Jim started laughing. The hospice nurse stuck her head around the door to see what the commotion was about. Oh, man, oh, man, what a, what a load of crap, said Jim. Yeah, I said, but it's perfect for the master of peripheral knowledge. Jim laughed until he cried. I know. I know, Jim, but it was sweet that Mr. Friedman saved it and gave it to me. It's demented, Rumi. You never knew the difference between kindness and insanity. Maybe not. Jim was struck by a pain. The nurse entered and altered his drip. Man, I'm such a mess. I'm sorry, I don't even look human anymore. Well, you look good to me, Jim. It's the prednisone. Makes you swell up. My legs are three times their size. Yeah, I had two friends with cancer. The medicine does that, but it's temporary. It's temporary, Jim. The swelling goes away. All you have to do is focus on getting through this week. Here's the deal. I'll call Bailey. We'll organize a reading for next week here in your room if you feel up for it. Yeah, yeah, sure. You can listen. You can make changes. We just need to get through this week. 
I'll get a copy to Grove. He could stay with us. And when you start feeling stronger, we'll get a space. We'll rehearse. Well, I'm not sure what shape I'll be in next week. Hey, me neither. I'm recovering too. I just had heart surgery. Jim was shocked. No way. Way. We're a couple wrecks now, Jimmy. But we have a plan. We have a play to work on. We just have to get through these bad days. Jim started to doze from the medication. I got up and kissed him on the cheek. I'll let you sleep now, but I got the script. I'll call you next week. And I'm sorry I left you, Rumi. I was just in love. I know. You did a good thing. Jim fell asleep. He passed away two days later. I read his plays. It was vintage Jim, funny, wise, and very true to Chekhov. I did see Jim one more time. He came to me in a dream about a month later. He looked good, like his old self. He was full of good humor. He asked me if I had any notes on the script. We sat and talked about staging the play. I was content that Jim was not gone, but had joined the legion of things that move in the dark. Jim once said, last words are important. There's only room for the essential. He was right. I'm sorry I left you, Rumi. I was just in love. This was a story for my beautiful friend Jim, who always led the way. <laughs>